Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing all right, wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this program wherever you listen. You can also subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. Follow the show on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And support the show on Patreon if you would be so kind. Today, my guest is Jim Ruland. He has a new novel out called Make It Stop. When I read about an imaginary drug in a book, I'm always like, ooh, I wonder what that's like. And I don't have to feel guilty because it's not fucking real. It's it's make-believe. So I've always wanted to, you know, make up a drug. And what's, what's a little strange is that I don't know how much I knew about fentanyl. You know, I started this 10 years ago, but in a way the, the drug I made is, is, is a little tame compared to how widespread fentanyl is. The only difference is that this drug is made, intentionally made with chemicals that if you take it orally, you'll, you'll, you'll get the full effect. But if you start shooting this stuff up, the effect is even more intense, but it comes with a real physical cost. Okay, that was Jim Ruland. His new novel is called Make It Stop. It is available now from Rare Bird Books. Make It Stop is a work of speculative fiction reminiscent of Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club. That's what comes to mind for me. It takes the reader into a version of the United States, a version of Los Angeles where corporate healthcare has gone completely off the rails, even more than it already has. And in particular, with respect to detox and rehab centers for people who are struggling with substance abuse. In the world of Make It Stop, patients 
in rehab centers are subjected to what is called conditional release, which essentially forces them to stay in the rehab centers until they can pay their bills. And if they don't pay, they don't leave, which is to say that they are effectively imprisoned. The title of this novel, Make It Stop, is also the name of a covert group of recovering addicts who rescue other addicts who are trapped inside these prison hospitals. This is a very entertaining and unsettling novel that explores sobriety and sanity and what it means to live in a sick society that is hell-bent on profiting off of people who are most in need of help. My conversation with Jim Ruland is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow, publisher of the novel Yellowface by number one New York Times bestselling author R.F. Quang. In Yellowface, bestselling sensation Juniper Song is not who she says she is. She didn't write the book that she claims to have written, and she is most certainly not Asian American. But no one has to know, right? This is a totally immersive book written in a striking first-person voice. Yellowface is a New York Times bestseller. It grapples with questions of diversity, racism, and cultural appropriation, as well as the terrifying alienation of social media. It's a timely, razor-sharp and eminently readable novel available now wherever books are sold. That is Yellowface by R.F. Quang, available now from William Morrow. So my guest, once again, is Jim Ruland. His new novel, Make It Stop, is available from Rare Bird Books right now. Jim Ruland's other books include the L.A. Times bestseller, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records, Uh, There is a novel called Forest of Fortune and a short story collection called Big Lonesome. He is the co-author of Do What You Want, written with Bad Religion, Uh, another book called My Damage, written with Keith Morris, founding member of Black Flag, Circle Jerks, and Off, and a book called Giving the Finger, written with Scott Campbell Jr. of Discovery Channel's Deadliest Catch. Jim Ruland writes frequently about punk and pop culture, for Razor Cake, America's only nonprofit independent music zine. He also writes book reviews and author profiles for the LA Times and the Los Angeles Review of Books. I am very happy to have Jim Ruland back here on the program. This is his second time on The Other People Show. We first spoke all the way back in August of 2014, nearly a decade ago in episode 307, and now he is making his triumphant return. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jim Ruland, and his new novel, One More Time, is called Make It Stop. The central premise of the book is that it takes place in a world if you don't pay your hospital bills, you don't get to leave. And so the book is told from the point of view of these people who bust people out of these prison hospitals, these dysfunctional vigilantes. And I got the idea reading the LA Times And it was an article about a maternity hospital in Nigeria where uh, people were holding uh, women hostage and not letting them leave until all of their, all the payments had been received. And it seemed especially cruel because 
they were separating women from their newborn babies in that really essential bonding time. So there was like this real urgency to, you know, connect the mother and the child. And I was horrified by it. And I was like, man, something like that could never happen here. And then I started to think about it and I was like, well, um, actually it probably something like that could happen. And I started to imagine the conditions where, where it could, because I mean, we live in a capitalist society that in one sense, it doesn't make sense to you know lock up patients so they can't work, but holding them hostage and under certain conditions does make a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people, all it takes is to go through a, a car accident to, you know, feel like you're a prisoner, to feel like you're being held hostage by the, the healthcare system and being utterly bankrupt by just chance. You can do everything right. You can have the right insurance and you can still end up in this situation. So um, a lot of people as I've gone on the road have, uh, you know, as they hear about the premise are like, yeah, this is like, you know, five minutes into the future, not some indeterminate thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's creepy in that way. And I have to say, like, if you have any experience being in the hospital or being with somebody who was in the hospital, it's obviously an unpleasant place to have to stay unless maybe you're there for the birth of a child, but even then. And what I find interesting and a little bit darkly funny is the ways in which the hospital experience sort of mirrors in some ways incarceration. Like, you know, you get, you get ID'd, you get a wristband. <laughs> they, you know, you have to change into their clothes. Basically you're in some sort of like hospital garb and then you want to leave, but you can't leave. They monitor your movements. They're monitoring all your vitals. And then finally, when it is time to go, you get like a plastic bin with all your belongings in it. <laughs> and they sort of walk you to the door. It's like it's like being like sprung from prison in a way. Yeah. And Brad, you know that I uh, served in the Navy. And so that, you know, whenever I run into something that's overly institutionalized, you know, I get that kind of vibe. And, uh, since I was kind of a bad sailor, there were many circumstances where my liberty was restricted in the parlance of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So uh, I think your analogy is dead on. So what what do you what do you mean you were a bad sailor? Well, I was a a good worker on the ship, but I would get a little carried away when I was on the beach. <laughs> so um, that was. Uh, I found out, let's say, I, I found out pretty early on, thanks to the Navy, that I might have a, uh, a substance abuse problem because uh, I kept running afoul with, uh, with, with the regs. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I want to talk about the cast of characters that you've created. And I'm wondering, like, where, like, what you were grabbing from. I think when writers are building characters, they're always, or usually, uh, you know, uh, building them from various people in their lives, their amalgamations, mm -hmm. some of its imagination. But this is a very vivid cast of characters. Uh, and I just want to hear you talk a little bit about how you cast your novel and, and assembled this crew of vigilantes who go and spring people from these uh, rehab facilities. Well, like one of the early inspirations was kind of those large, uh, ensemble TV shows like where they have uh, there's a group and they have a headquarters and they're all in the room together and they finish each other's sentences. Um, 
and it's cheesy and corny. And after three episodes, you're like, I think I might be in love with this character and I hate that character. And that was part of the inspiration because I love those shows too. But also just, you know, going through recovery, you just meet some really interesting people. And especially uh, in the rooms and in rehab scenarios, I never did an inpatient uh, rehab. It was all uh, outpatient. But like you'll get these uh, bits of wisdom and caring and real warmth. And you just hear things that you absolutely need to hear and are just you know, like the miracle of recovery will happen for you from a guy that's like got no teeth or, you know, has been incarcerated for most of his life or, or who may not even have a place to stay at that particular moment. Like you, you pull back and you like, and you see like, wow, like the rest of the world would probably cross the street if they uh, saw them coming, but here they are, you know, the whole magic of broken people helping broken people. So I really wanted to kind of get that into, uh, into the novel as well. Yeah, you know, that's the thing about addiction is that it doesn't, it's not exclusive to a particular class or race or anything like it, it transcends all of that. So, I mean, I, I've not been through recovery myself, but I have been to meetings before as an observer and it's pretty extraordinary and extraordinarily moving and a little bit harrowing too sometimes. <laughs> it could be all of those things in a single meeting. Yeah, no doubt. And I think too, that setting the book in Los Angeles, I mean, obviously you have experience here in town and are a Californian, but it is, and I, I don't know if you have the statistics on this, but it has to be one of the places in the world with the highest per capita number of rehabilitation centers. I want to say there was an article in the New Yorker years ago that was particularly interested in Malibu. Yeah, And the calculation was that there were like, I want to say some crazy number of rehab facilities in Malibu. It was like 2000. So there was like one rehab center <laughs> for every 14 people or, you know what I'm saying? You do the math and it was something crazy like that. So is that correct? Well, I know Malibu, I, I don't know the numbers. I know that there are quite a few. And over the years of interacting, I know that you know, there's this illusion of Malibu being this place that's you know completely gated off and walled off in the rest of reality. But there are quite a few rehab centers, sober living homes. I mean, I think if you count sober living facilities, then that definitely there's a bunch up there. And uh, and we also know that like, you know, rehab works, you know, when the person is ready for it. And lots of times, you know, because of, you know, Nowadays, you get a DUI, you're going to AA meetings, whether you want to or not. And maybe that's conduct conducive, but maybe not. But like, you know, if you have a problem and, you know, everyone in your family says, you know, hey, Jim, go, go talk to Brad because we think he could really use this. If you're not ready to hear it, it's just not going to work. So you get up to a place like Malibu where you have all these rehabbies funneling through, um, maybe not the safest place uh, or most desirable place, you know, just from that turnover. It's also big business. I mean, these places are not cheap or some of these places anyway, and people make money running these facilities. And, uh, you know, I'm not knocking anybody for making a living. It's vital work, but it is big business, right? And there has to be some aspect of it that might be opportunistic, 
Though I'm only speculating. Oh, yeah, they, they prey on people. Like when I was first, you know, when I was a newbie, first going to meetings, people would just kind of descend on me and be like, you know, wanted to know my living situation. You know, do I need a, uh, a sponsor? But a lot of these people also ran sober living homes and they, they wanted to fill their beds. They had a little van, they go pick people up and they just try to get you into their facility for your own good. What about medical insurance? I know medical insurance does cover some rehabilitation cost if you have a decent policy, but in terms of like sober living homes and transitional housing for somebody who's coming out of an inpatient stay for rehab, does that, like who absorbs the cost for that usually? I think usually families absorb it. I think that's that's mainly the case. And, and that's why you get this, you know, fatigue and you have this population of people who are kind of on the outs with the rest of society because they've exhausted all their resources. They don't have a, they don't have a family to go to anymore because they, they tried or they have heartily tried, or they, they went to a facility because, you know, someone urged them to go or because they got gotten arrested again or, or something like that. That's kind of the reason why, aside from my own recovery, why I wanted to, why I chose this demographic, you know, to write about, uh, because you know, in the book, I call it conditional release, where you sign a paper where your release is conditional on paying everything. And uh, and it make it stop. They call it stay until you pay. And uh, the whole idea of like, if, if let's say the state of California or any state is going to start rolling this out, well, they're not going to start like on a cancer ward or something like that. They're going to start with the most vulnerable people imaginable. They're going to start with people who have a you know, have brain health issues, people who are in a, a mental health crisis, people who are, you know, substance abusers and addicts and alcoholics and people on the streets. Those are the people who are going to get swept up in these policies without really understanding what what's going on. And they essentially get, you know, if they can't pay, then they essentially end up in a gulag. That, that's right. What's interesting uh, is that you mentioned uh, Fight Club at the at the top of the show and i was really excited to hear that because fairly late in the revising process of this book i just happened to watch fight club again and you know everybody remembers you know the the whole line about fight club right about you know we don't talk about fight club and they remember brad pitt and his beautiful half-naked body but (laughs) i was just fascinated by Project Mayhem, because here's this vigilante group that was like, had totally different purpose than make it stop. But uh, it was really exciting to see, you know, what they did and what they were doing and how they recruited people and all that stuff. And I have a theory that if 9-11 hadn't happened so close on the heels of the release of Fight Club, where suddenly the idea of discussing blowing buildings up became... uh, um, not something you wanted to do in public or on public transportation and certainly not on airplanes that maybe uh, some project mayhem like organizations, some, some vigilante groups may have gotten off the ground to uh, stop this like completely co- corporate course um, of living that we seem to be on. Well, yeah, no, I think of like Occupy Wall Street and I'm trying to place that in time. I don't know what year that was, but you could see maybe something like that being an outgrowth of that, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, 9-11 changed everything. And 
now when they don't and won't know what to do with you and they want to like you know put you away and not have to explain why they slap domestic terrorism charges on you right 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 hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So the vigilante group that you've assembled is badass, also a little funny, uh, a little bit fucked up. <laughs> you know, these people are committed to fighting back against what's it called? Uh, Health Net Secure. Mm-hmm. It's like this giant consortium of healthcare facilities that is essentially like we've been talking about holding people hostage. And you've got your vigilante group. The protagonist, Melanie, is this like punk rock chick. The organization that, and is that's a fair characterization? I don't mean to minimize her, but that's just how I think of her. She had the mohawk in the beginning and she's tatted up and, you know, she's yep. kind of a badass. And the organization that goes out and tries to spring people from these facilities is called Make It Stop. These vigilantes have all struggled with substance abuse themselves and are battling uh, to maintain sobriety, not always successfully. <laughs> so that's one of the subplots of the book and one of the parts of it. Like a source of tension, sometimes a source of dark comedy is that these people are you know, trying to save people from facilities that at least nominally they could put, they could use you know, treatment themselves. Well, I'm kind of fascinated with the idea of, you know, how much of our society functions just because we all agree to let it function that way. For example, uh, the border with Mexico is a great example. I mean, the border is imaginary. I mean, there's no laser wall that stops people from crossing. You know, it's just it's this whole Byzantine network of of laws and policies that are always in flux uh, that that can that regulate the flow of people between two nations that are next door neighbors. You know, where I live in San Diego, every time I turn into the condo where I live, I can see the the lights of Tijuana, and I'm always thinking about like, I mean, what's really stopping that border to cease to exist in our imagination? You know, when I was in the military, that idea of you know like like the rules and everything was pretty ironclad it and sometimes it seemed more powerful than like actual 
laws and real police force and stuff like that. And I think it, it came, it all stems from, you know, like the English Navy and how difficult it was to run a ship with a bunch of fucked up people. And you had to have like really strong rules and really strong punishments. And that works until it doesn't. And so that works until it doesn't idea is something I'm really fascinated with and make it stop is one of those things. It's, they all agree that they're an underground organization. They move around, they have secret headquarters, but as you, as you mentioned, they all have issues. I had some fun with that. And it also like, you know, what's, what is the engine of story, uh, but conflict. So put a bunch of drunks in a room together, whether they're drinking or not, you're going to end up with, with conflict. Well, and there's like, yeah, and there's romantic conflict as well. Like there are a lot of genre tropes that you are uh, operating in this narrative. Uh, it's a lot of fun to read. And there's something, I don't know if I'm going to use the right adjective, like pulpy, like almost comic book like. I'm thinking of Applewhite in particular, this kind mm -hmm. of brute villain who is the enforcer for uh, Derek Hansen, the CEO of Health Net Secure. And he's mm -hmm. just this great menacing character that i could easily see on the screen uh you know and i'm wondering uh, about that part of it for you like how do you conceive i guess you'd call this a, a a dystopian thriller like that was the the objective when you set out was to write a thriller no not not at all i mean i i thought that uh i thought i had a really good idea with this this high concept premise of you know, a world where if you don't pay your hospital bills, you don't get to leave. And I thought I was writing, when I started out, I wanted to write something, you know, serious, a serious novel. Like I wanted to write literature. I thought I wanted something to be very high-minded and unclassifiable. And uh, well, you can kind of already tell that like, that that was almost a plan to fail. And I mean, it took me a long, long time to finish this book, Brad, because you know, I had all my intentions were really not working out and I really had to kind of sink into the characters and, and listen to what they wanted to be, but also come to grips with, you know, what, what am I capable of? What can I do here? What can I execute and, and have it be a, a compelling story? So I leaned into, you know, the, the crime novel tropes and the comic book stuff and, you know, the, the crappy TV that, that is just so addictive. And, you know, it's like, Hey, if that's, if that's the book that I can write, then that that's, that's what I'm going to do. Well, but it makes me think of the fact or the idea and how it is often true that, you know, works of art tend to start out as one thing and then eventually become themselves, which is often very different from the thing they started out as, you know, you launch into a book length project and it is inevitably going to mutate as you go and you're going to be in a process of discovery and it's got to be interesting to you to have started out with such a different intention than what you wound up with and yet i feel like this book is fully realized i think with the high concept idea that you started with the choices that you made make tons of sense like, of course it would be this way. And it also makes it fun to read. Like it could easily, could easily a book about like a dystopian healthcare insurance system could easily become a huge drag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I wrote a draft of that book, that, that drag. And, uh, 
I mean, like a lot of the people who have been on the show before, you know, I have plenty of books that, you know, didn't make it right. I finished them and we're like, okay, like I would rather, you know, cut off an arm than go back and revise that mess. So if I feel that way, then, you know, away you go into the, into the proverbial drawer and there's no shame in abandoning a novel. Um, sometimes it's just kind of fun to do something and figure out that it wasn't that, wasn't that fun after all. So, um, but there was just something about both the idea and also Melanie in that, you know, I had this character and put her in just these incredibly vulnerable situations. And I felt like I had to honor that in some way. I had to, you know, stick with it and not give up on the project. How did, where did she come from, Melanie? Well, um, I think the last time I was on this show, we were talking about, um, uh, Forest of Fortune, the novel, and one of those characters is a little autobiographical. I may have been reluctant to admit that before. I mean, I'd have to go back and see if I cop to it at all. But it was, it has a, a character who's dealing with alcoholism, who works, you know, as a copywriter at a tribal casino, and all those things were true about me. And I knew that if I was going to go back into the world of, of addiction, that I didn't want to just have a character where I just funneled my own experiences and my own point of view. And we both know that the healthcare experience is very different for women than it is for men. So I kind of knew that my protagonist was going to needed to be a woman who, you know, was going to have, you know, be put in this intentionally very putting herself in this very dangerous position of breaking into a hospital and then also being extremely vulnerable when she gets there. Um, so that that's kind of why I settled on Melanie as opposed to, you know, having someone who was like myself again. I just did not want to do that. Well, and then there's another element to the novel, which is so central and so key and which braids into the narrative and into the dystopia that you're drawing here. It braids into the narrative, of the pharmaceutical industry. And you've created this drug called Bliss, which I believe is, you know, supposed to be. I think it's advertised as something that's like, uh, you know, used for sex therapy or it helps people awaken to their libidos or whatever, but it actually has much darker qualities that are leveraged by health net secure. Do I have that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, one of the things about uh, being in recovery and, and being very comfortable in my recovery um you know, I mean, there aren't too many days where I'm white knuckling it through the day, you know, and, you know, maybe that's tomorrow, maybe that's coming, but today is a great day. And when I read about an imaginary drug in a book, I'm always like, ooh, I wonder what that's like. And I don't have to feel guilty because it's not fucking real. It's a, it's a, it's make believe. And uh, so I've always wanted to, you know, make up a drug. And what's, what's a little strange is that I don't know how much I knew about fentanyl. You know, I started this 10 years ago, but in a way the the drug I made is, is a little tame compared to how widespread fentanyl is. And, uh, the only difference is that this drug is made intentionally made with chemicals that if you take it orally, you'll, you'll, you'll get the full effect. But if you start shooting this stuff up, it goes, the effect is even more intense but it comes with a real physical cost. So of course people are going to be shooting it up and, and that <laughs> it's to be a problem. Yeah. 
Well, I have to say, I noted this. It's a little bit of a dark observation, but Mm -hmm. the scenes that take place in bars that have to do with alcohol, the scenes that take place in punk clubs or in the punk club, very well drawn. I was like, well, Jim has been around. (laughs) He knows these places because, you know, you just, the descriptions of like the dark bar, like the beachside bar, I forget exactly what language you use, but it's like, man, I was there. You can feel the coldness of the glass and the, you know, the whole thing. So in a, in a kind of dark way, that must've been fun for you. Like you say, it's all in the imagination. Oh yeah. I did my homework. It was, it was uh, (laughs) nice to be able to put that research to uh, some kind of legitimate purpose, right? Yeah, well, and speaking of research, like another thing that I noted about this book is that the action sequences, of which there are several, are very well done. And those are difficult in my experience. I don't know if this is the case for you, but I feel like drawing, you know, trying to write like a really heavy action sequence in fiction, there's a lot of opportunities to lose the reader in space. You know, you got to really keep people oriented and I kept thinking to myself, wow, he's got a military background. There's a lot of like infiltration and extraction sequences. You know, that's the nature of what this vigilante group does. You had to be capitalizing on your military background a little bit, no? Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, I think that's hilarious (laughs) because uh, I was a deck seaman. So I worked in a paint locker. Uh, I pushed paintbrushes around. I pushed mops around. I mean, I had, uh, yeah, I was qualified to, you know, shoot the 50 caliber machine gun or whatever. But, um, but no, my day-to-day life was basically paint and preservation, uh, a janitor for the industrial military complex. So <laughs> I think that's very funny. Uh, yeah. They even have a nickname for what we are. We're deck apes. So uh, <laughs> deck apes, Glamorous. any deck apes listening would find that characterization uh, very funny. But you know, I, I, um, I met a guy who was a thriller writer and, he told me that he likes to think when he like organ. I mean, he's written like thirty books or twenty. I don't know how many, but that he likes to think of organizing his books around it, like as a series of raids. And that made a lot of sense to me, especially since I have this group, you know, kind of trying to infiltrate these hospitals and get people out. So, um, and also you see that all the time in in television too, right? It's like five people in a room they're all they're all looking something at a screen it's like okay here's our mission and then those uh, very unrealistic that the same five people are then going to all pile into a van and then actually carry it out but that's the case so yeah i learned it all from uh, tv and airport thrillers right? oh interesting was it challenging were those sequences of particularly challenging or no I mean, yeah, there's always a tendency to go too fast. I think you got you got to slow it down a little bit, but not so much that it becomes, you know, opposite to what you're trying to accomplish. But not so fast that you're like, well, where are we and what's happening? And um, and uh, like when I read those thrillers, when I kind of get lost in uh, in the world and I don't know where I am, then that's um, or the cheats are becoming too obvious. Like when there's all these explosions going off and people are yet communicating via tiny little microphones in their ears, it just seems like, okay, this is this is a little silly. So I didn't ever want it to get s- silly. Right, right. And you've got a lot of technology. I mean, we talked about the drug that you invented, but there's also like, uh, you know, stuff that's fairly easy to imagine 
happening in the not too distant future where people are talking to each other via holograms. I think they're called hollows in the, in the novel and they have tabs, which are like communication devices. I'm trying to think of if there's anything else, but these are the things that you must have, I don't know. It's not too difficult to conjure that stuff, right? These are, these are not giant leaps. It feels like this is the direction that we're heading. Brad, I, I'm, I'm a little insulted because 10 years ago, these were <laughs> massive leaps forward and things. No, kidding. Uh, yeah, if you're going to write a near future novel, you should try not to take 10 years to do it because the present will keep eclipsing your imagination in really frustrating ways. So, so yeah. If it, you have it, good, if you have good intuition and good instincts, I mean, that's part of what good speculative fiction or speculative thrillers do is that they feel either predictive or close to being predictive. And that has, I think, to do with, uh, I was just talking to Emily St. John Mandel on this show about this, about oh, having yeah. a good antenna. That, yeah, that's what we were talking about is like, you know, some writers have really good antenna or antennae. And uh, I think, you know, you, you're demonstrating this with this book because- well, I'm, I'm a big I, lover of the counterfactual, you know, the what if. I think those are some of the most uh, fun premises to explore where you just take one thing about your life or one thing about society and you're like, well, what if, you know, this happened instead of that? And, um, that, that can be, you know, quite a bit of fun. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the 10 year process that you went through I and mean, we touched on it already a little bit, but I'm interested to know about the transition from considering this as a serious work of literary fiction and having that be your intention at the outset and then I guess, slowly realizing or suddenly realizing that the book was more of a speculative thriller and had certain genre tropes that were needed to fill it out and make it really sing. At what point in a decade long process did it start to occur to you that you were on the wrong path? Like how many like bad drafts were there? At what point did you make the pivot? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little hard to say. Um, you know, like part of it is that uh, I, I like to think that I would have figured it out a lot faster if I was not also, you know, working on some other nonfiction projects. You know, like I, I've written some books with some punk rockers, like I wrote a book with Keith Morris. I think I think that had already happened the last time we talked. But I, I, after that, I wrote a book with Bad Religion. And then I wrote a narrative history of SST Records, you know, and had some other other things that went on. So I was I had those projects as well that I was kind of going back and forth between. And I like to think that, you know, I learned, you know, for each project I learned, you know, I became a better writer and I learned something about how to approach a problem that I did not know how to solve, or I may not have even recognized in an earlier draft. I will say that probably uh, the, the, the moment where I realized that how to fix it, was I was uh, I adapted part of the uh, memoir that I wrote with Keith Morris. Keith Morris is the founding uh, vocalist for Black Flag and the Circle Jerks, and it was for a project we were just going to explore Keith's childhood in Hermosa Beach in the seventies. That that was going to be the feature for an indie film. Basically, it ends where Black Flag begins, right? So it's about it's about all that. And I was really amazed how we got a whole feature out of about like 70 pages of Keith's memoir. And, you know, there were more stories that he told me and more things that we fleshed out. 
But when we got done with that, I just could not wait to, you know, adapt my novel into a, um, into a screenplay as well. But I realized that like, wait, this novel, novel or a different one, hmm? this novel you wanted to adapt or a different one? Yeah. meant to make it stop because I feel like I would figure out what was wrong with it. Ah. And, uh, and I did because, you know, you have a scene and I'm like, well, shit, this guy is just sitting in a room having thoughts. He's just smoking a cigarette. There's nothing happening. Like when, so when you do that, you know, adaptation process, you know, like there's nowhere to hide, you know, my friend, uh, Joshua Moore, uh, always says that about like when you adapt something like there's just nowhere to hide. I mean, there's, it's either a scene or it's not. And I had a lot of scenes that weren't. And so that really got me thinking about like, you know, changing up the different locations, having more dynamic things happen. And I think maybe that's when it really started to take, uh, um, a genre turn. And then, then I went into the pandemic and I had, I mean, the novel was, was fairly long and it was much more than a, you know, basically had a season's a television shows worth entire season's worth of scripts. So then I began to adapt it back into a novel, which is a great way to learn, you know, what's wrong with your book, but man, did it take a fucking long time to do that? Yeah, but you know, that makes so much sense. And it's an interesting, because I was, I was, the next question I was going to ask you before we got onto this track was whether or not you outlined, because this is a novel that is concerned with plot, that does well with plot. I was, it's one of those books, which is usually the case with a well-plotted novel, whereas I was reading it, I was kind of from my writerly perspective thinking like, how's he going to land this plane? You know, because you just, I couldn't see the ending coming. And I, you know, usually uh, I have a good nose for that sort of thing. So that's to your credit. But in the absence of doing an outline, I can't think of a better way to put a novel together like this or to give yourself a slow, painful crash course in plotting <laughs> than to take the prose that you've written and to try to adapt it into it, what it sounds like is a either a limited series or season one of a television series, you know, and like you say, nowhere to hide. It'll show you where the slow parts are, if nothing else. You know, it, it really took a long time. And uh, so it's not something I necessarily recommend, um, <laughs> especially if you like, you know, have a family or something, but <laughs> Uh, it just so happened that it was during the pandemic and I was working on a nonfiction book, you know, pretty intensely. And I had another friend, my friend, uh, J.D. O'Brien, who I was just uh, touring around Arizona with. He had written a screenplay and he wanted to adapt it into a novel. So we just traded chapters. We just work on it just a little bit each night, turning our 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 projects written or scripts back into the, into a novel. And it was just kind of amazing that the, the books that we actually, it worked and the pro, the books were better and they found a publisher and they came out around the same time. It was just kind of astonishing, you know, that it all worked out that way. Cause it seems like something that, uh, that shouldn't or wouldn't happen. Is it a process that you could see yourself repeating, at least in some form? Like, was it useful enough that you think it might be something that becomes central to your work, or do you think it's project specific? I think it's project specific. I really don't want to jinx myself, Brad, but uh, I recently wrote a first draft of of a novel in about seven months, and I'm 
I think it's pretty much all there. It, need, it needs a lot of work, but I don't think it, you know, has anywhere near the kind of problems that I was encountering with the previous book. So every project is different, has its own challenges and, you know, diff- different stories have different shortcomings and different strengths. But for now, I'm kind of operating under the illusion that I've turned a corner and won't need to do such an extensive uh, rewrite to, to figure out how to pull the story together. Is there anything that you feel like carried over from Make It Stop to the novel that you just drafted in seven months? Like, was there were there plot issues that maybe you solved more quickly than you otherwise would have because of the lessons that you learned from the long, grueling process that you went through? Well, that's a great question. Um, I haven't really reflected too much on it other than, um, you know, I, hmm. I, I think one of the things is... Um, that whole notion of the dream of the novel in that, you know, you can take as, you can take as long as it takes to, to write a novel. But I think for most people, at least for me, it was periods where I was, you know, very intensely engaged with it and periods where I was not, it's not like I was, you know, typing away at a novel for 10 years in a dark basement somewhere. I think it was, you know, being in and out of it and things happening and being, you know, when you're engaged with it, that's when the things happen. And when you're not, well, it just sits there. Right. So I, I think that, um, knowing like sustaining that dream. And then when I had a, like kind of a break right in the middle of that period, like being okay with that and knowing like, okay, well, it's just good. This is just the way it's going to have to be right now. Let's clear the deck so I can get back to it as quickly as possible. And, um, because, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s now, so um, I, I don't have uh, very many 10-year novels left in me, Brad. So uh. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Got to pick your projects carefully. And sometimes, you know, as, as difficult as it can be for an author to endure a long gestation process or to be juggling multiple projects or dealing with whatever, you know, life has in store, sometimes I find that the longer process and the lulls that you might go through can ultimately be of benefit to the project and can bring things to it that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Yeah. And I think if, um, whatever it is, I think you just have to learn to be okay with it because I know in my twenties, I filled my head with all these toxic ideas of, uh, you know, Jack Kerouac wrote this and, you know, 15 minutes on speed or whatever it is. <laughs> James Joyce was finished Dubliners by the time he was 25. I mean, all those stupid things that you compare yourself to and, and all it does is just set you back further because you're, you're preoccupied with the wrong thing. And what about sobriety as it relates to creativity? I'm always interested in this when I speak with writers who have gone through a recovery process uh, like we both know that this profession has a lot of strong ties to substance abuse. Some of it gets glorified. You know, you talk about Kerouac or you talk about mm-hmm. uh, Hemingway. I think men in particular, there's like a masculine kind of macho thing that happened in the 20th century in particular, where uh, I think it, it can become a problem when you internalize that, right? I mean, it's like, you almost feel like you have to be a boozer in order to be a writer, you know, at least at an earlier stage of life. And I'm just curious to know about having the aspiration to write, 
as you said, filling your head with toxic ideas in your 20s, probably filling your head with other toxic things, and then getting to a place where you ultimately put all that stuff down. Like, I guess maybe a good place to start is like, when did you get sober? And then if you could just talk a little bit about how it not only like impacted your life, but how it in particular impacted your creative life. Sure. I love this question. Uh, I got sober in 2009. So about, I think I just celebrated 14 years in February. And, um, you know, the benefits were right away. I was, you know, mainly an alcoholic, you know, along with other things that would kind of help that going. But I was, when I got sober, you know, I was a, you know, newly married, a fairly new parent. You know, I had a job. And, you know, I, I lost a close friend to addiction. And I, and I believe we talked about this actually the last time I was on. And um, that was a wake up call. And so I was kind of a high bottom because I didn't I didn't lose all the things that it usually takes to kind of snap people out of, you know, their disease. But some some very close to me lost everything. And that was and thankfully that was enough. And the benefits to my creative life were immense because one, it freed me from just all these lies that I was dragging around, you know, trying to, you know, project this image of myself as a, you know, sane and sober person when I was just off the rails and riddled with secrets and just drinking every chance that I got. And of course, people close to me knew that, but I had to lie and pretend like none of it was happening. And just to be relieved, put all that aside was just an immense relief. And and now I just tell on myself all the time, like there's no, there's no, I got no shame about the things I used to do and it, it, it feels great. But one of the best things is that I learned early on that for me and for many alcoholics is that resentment is a one way, is a one way ticket to a relapse. I mean, that's kind of what they teach you in the rooms is that you you got to live a resentment free life. You got to be got to have gratitude for where you are. And I never realized how much resentment is tied in uh, with the arts, um, whether you're a musician or a visual artist or, or a writer, but there's all this resentment about things that aren't happening in your career, uh, things that you're not getting, awards, other people's success. There's a lot of resentment about all of those things. And you know, I, I didn't really, wasn't even really aware of what's happening. And then once I just kind of cleared the decks of that resentment, I was able to just really be a happier person, but happy for all the success that other people were enjoying. And that, you know, I wasn't turned inside out by these things that I felt like, you know, and I wasn't quite there yet because, I, you know, I was not, I didn't have much of a career before I got sober, but I could see it. I could see myself turning into this, you know, bitter older person. It was just riddled with resentment and about all the things that should have happened. You know, um, that was, that was where, that was who I was going to be. That was absolutely the course that I was on. And, and now it's pretty great where I can just, you know, just be concerned, you know, with my own work and not worry about outcomes, you know, not worry about anything that happens. And when, those great things happen to other people that I know or are work are in the same circle. I, I can be genuinely happy for those people. So, um, so yeah, that, uh, that's, that's been a huge gift. I bet. And I think 
it's worth like drilling down a little bit more into like clearing the decks of resentment. Like it's one thing to say that it's another thing to do that. It's one thing to know that it's worth doing and another thing to be able to do it. Like you get sober, you recognize that that resentment is causing you problems and isn't really serving you creatively or otherwise. And then what you just let go of it. That's it. I mean, like how does it actually happen in practice? Well, um, when I got sober, I was working at a casino and it was, it was during the recession. It was all this upheaval and constant shifting around and people getting fired and let go and quitting. And, you know, um, it's a very strange place to work, work to begin with, but it had, there's something interesting about the casino industry, just as an aside that there's kind of a meritocracy that doesn't exist in other places so that you can, you can, you know, be a, a server in a restaurant and, 10 years later, be in upper management. It, it is possible to happen in that environment. But the, after one of these readjustments, there was like someone who I didn't get along with and it didn't get along with me, who was now my direct supervisor. And I just had to be like, I, I got to do something about this. I can't, you know, I, I just, I can't have this relationship where I'm just completely uh, resentful of, of everything she says or everything I say to her. And I, you know, it was just going to be a, a major problem unless I, you know, really worked at this relationship. And so I found something that we had in common, which was restaurants. Cause we lived in a kind of similar area and we both, you know, like to go to some of these places. And so every Monday I just made a point to talk about like where I went out to eat that weekend. And all of a sudden we had like a real relationship and all that's all that other stuff which was mainly in my head anyway, just started to fade away. So that's just kind of an example of like a way that a practical way of, of dealing with it. Well, that's what I mean. You're, what you're just talking, what, what you just said about how most of it is in your head. I think that's the way these things ultimately work is it's not like an, uh, a sudden total banishment of every resentful feeling or, or thought in your head, but it is, the establishment of mistrust in their validity and certainly in their permanence. Like once you realize that this stuff is there and you sort of see it for what it is and you realize how ephemeral it is and how often it's cooked up, it's not really rooted in all that much reality. Right. Then you don't trust it as much anymore. And when you yeah. don't trust it as much anymore, it has less control over you. Yeah. And that's, um, that's kind of like in my relationship with my wife where we're kind of at now where, where it used to take me a long time to realize just how absurd I am or how I was being. Um, now with some conditioning and training, no, I'm kidding. Now I kind of am much faster to see, you know, you know, the bullshit that's at the root of so many arguments and disagreements. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I feel like as like a marriage progresses, if it's progressing decently well enough, like the, the time, the time gaps get shorter between being a fool and recognizing it, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you apologize more quickly or you just stop being a, a jerk more quickly. That's been the case for me. You know, you get a little bit better. It's, it's always imperfect, but you get hopefully a little bit better you know, as you go. And eventually yeah. that, those little yeah, bits add way? up. I think if all, if all the men would just realize what a jerk they are, <laughs> the world would be a better place. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's like, I don't know. I go through these, like we're going through a period right now in my household. It's just busy. And somebody was saying that Mercury is, is in retrograde. It's about to go out of retrograde. I don't believe in all that stuff or I don't know enough about it to know, but like I'm willing to blame that. I'm always happy to blame something, but shit has just been crazy and super hectic. It's like the end of the year. There's travel we've got to do. It's like all this stuff is just coming at me. And when I get into those situations, I don't always handle it well. Like I can just get overloaded. And I caught myself last night. I had to go to some like school event for my daughter. And I was just like, don't be an asshole. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just having like quiet, like uh, giving myself a speech like internally, you know, and I, I reined it in decently well enough. I considered it a victory is the point. <laughs> I didn't fully yeah, well, demonstrate. Being a, a parent is hard. And, uh, you know, my daughter is in college and I miss her like crazy, you know, and, you know, it's the time you have is fleeting. And I know everybody says that and it goes by so fast, but, you know, you know, it really, it really does. does. It really does. Yeah. No, we're, I'm feeling that right now. Like we're heading into junior high and it feels like it's, I think when you're going through parenthood, there's all these like moments where you're like already like, holy, like, where did it go? Like, I just brought her home from the hospital. And it really, I mean, it sounds cliche, but that really is how it, how it goes. And maybe that's just life, you know? And I feel like it's life increasingly as you get older. It feels like it speeds up as you get older, which is sort of cruel. <laughs> yeah. Like once you start to get a handle on things, you're like, oh wait, it's what year is it? How old am I? Yeah. yeah. What are these tubes in my arm? Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> So let's talk about, I want to talk about punk rock before I leave you. You mentioned earlier that you've written a lot of books on this subject and have collaborated with musicians. Your book, Corporate Rock Still Sucks, or Corporate Rock Sucks. That's right. Is is along these lines. This music obviously has a lot of import to you personally. And I feel like Make It Stop is infused with a kind of punk rock spirit. Uh, there is, as we talked about, the scene that takes place in a punk club. There's a band called the Führers, I believe. Um, not to be confused with like the German word Führer, but like Führer, right? <laughs> yeah. The uh, uh, righteous anger, not the leader of the Third Reich. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So uh, you are a huge punk fan. You have to be, right? I am. I am. Yes. Like, I'm curious to know, like, why like how that music grabbed a hold of you i'm also curious to know how it might inform the work that you do in a literary sense sure well um the ramones started it off you know i i saw the ramones when i was like 15 years old and in dc my mom actually took me and my brother and that was pretty amazing and uh it wasn't one of those things where like ah i found my tribe like you hear with a lot of people because my parents were really strict and i wasn't really allowed to do those kinds of things and i was the oldest of four and we went to Catholic school and, you know, I was a, I was a pretty good rule follower until I, I joined the military and realized like, fuck this. Um, <laughs> and that was where like a really good uh, education in like, you know, that's when I like met, you know, punk rockers and metalheads from Arizona and skinheads from Louisiana and just all this like, you know, music I had never been exposed to uh, from all all corners of the country. And it wasn't until I got hooked up with uh, um, people that wrote for zines that I realized, like, that could be my entry point because I'm not a musician. You know, I was just kind of a fan. 
these punk rock fanzines were just gave me access to the music that I love. And it just meant if you just write a little bit, you know, do some reviews and that led to doing interviews, which was always fun to led to having a column. And, um, I wrote for Flipside for many years. And then when that went under for razor kick, which I still do to this day. So, um, zines it was all about zines being it. And that when you write for a punk rock zine, like razor cake, I mean, you're always finding out about really incredible stuff. So what is it about the music that you respond to so much? I like the DIY aspect of it. I like the fact that it's not for most people. I like that it is, um, I mean, like punk is cool in a way, like it's kind of cool to uh, be someone my age and be like a gatekeeper and have like a, you know, circle jerks poster on your wall or something like that. But um, I'm just always like immensely impressed with uh, the DIY spirit and the whole idea of like young kids just doing something to do it and doing it together and making something real and then going out in the world and sharing it. I, I just find that fascinating. Did you ever get down into the pit? Like, I mean, there's a scene you described so vividly at that punk club where the Fuhrers are playing in your novel and it can get kind of rough down there. Like, was were you in those scenes like as a younger man? Yeah, but I was, you know, like, yes and no. Like, you know, I've never been all that terribly interested in, you know, um, you know, that, that whole weird display of male dominance slash, yeah, I, I really don't know. It, it, it's kind of, that whole thing is strange to me, but like, but like I went to see, you know, I'm old enough to have seen Fugazi, for example, at the Palladium, which was an enormous pit. It seemed to take an hour to go all the way around it. And it was like each circle around it was like a novel along with a few lectures from Ian MacKay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm not just dismissing it with one thing, but um, it's just really fascinating in that like these books have taken me places I never thought I'd go. I've, I've like following bad religion around and getting the whole punk stadium festival experience is, has been really eye-opening, but I still prefer like the dingy, dirty little punk rock club. And and to be honest, Brad, those were places that I kind of had to stop going to when I got sober. And it took me a while to be able to go back and like not feel like, you know, doing some blow in the bathroom would make this a lot better. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, that's like got to be one of the most difficult like hurdles or challenges to deal with in sobriety is like being social, being a social person and finding yourself in situations where you have proximity to places like that. Like I have friends that are sober and, you know, have been sober a long time. And like you say, uh, I forget how you put it earlier, but it's not like a super dangerous situation. Like they're stable in their sobriety, at least on that day. So they can do it. They can go out to a bar with friends and have a soda water with a lime in it and hang out. But that's got to be something that you work towards, I would imagine. Well, it's kind of interesting being a punk of a certain age means, unfortunately, that a lot of your friends are dead. That's just the way it is. But it also means that a lot of your friends are sober and uh, maybe a larger percentage than any of the other circles that I'm involved with. I know more sober punks than sober writers, for example, although there are quite a few out there. Um, so, so that part is good. Well, but I feel like that's, I mean, it almost feels like it's got to be one or the other at a certain age. Like, how can you continue to, I, I marvel at anybody who can still, 
abuse substances like past the age of 45. <laughs> like there's a, that was the pivot for me. I mean, my pivot actually happened much earlier. Like I just couldn't deal with the hangovers. Like it just wasn't practical for me. But I think as you age, it just gets harder and harder to absorb the physical toll, especially if you're really in deep. And I don't know, I guess some people just have really strong constitutions or they're just used to it or something. But I have a few friends that are still living pretty rough at almost the age of 50. And it's like, I don't know where that ends. <laughs> Probably nowhere <Yeah>. good. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I think it takes a, I mean, I'm always impressed when I meet people who got sober at a very young age, but there's a, there's a thing where you go from like, oh my God, never having a drink again to thank God I never have to experience another hangover. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just talked with Claire Dieterer on this show. She, she is a mm -hmm. sober writer and I was asking her about it and she described the process of sobriety and I'm going to botch this, but she said something along the lines of, it was like being on a very slow moving river away from self-hatred, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like day after day. And That's I think, true. yeah, but I mean, it, I think it has very much to do with uh, the, the state that you're in when you're hungover. At least that's how I imagine it, you know, and mm -hmm. have experienced it. I mean, even as a person who is not struggling with addiction, everybody who has gone out on a bender has woken up at some point and been like, what the hell did I say last night? <laughs> you know, or like, what did I do? And you sort of feel shame. And that yep. has to be a huge emotional toll for somebody who's really struggling. Yeah. Yeah. So kudos for not having to deal with that. <laughs> You know, thank you, so, Brad. Yeah, um, I definitely want to check out Claire's book. I've been hearing great things about it. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. And I know that you are on tour and you have to get to the next stop. You're on like this big tour. Can you talk about it? Like, I mean, I guess this is going to go up a little bit after the fact, but how long are you on tour for, first of all? Um, I'm this leg, I'm doing eight events in the Midwest, and they're just kind of you know, I'm going to be in bookstores. I was in a bike shop in Madison last night. I'm going to go to St. Paul and then Chicago and I'm going to be in record stores. So it's just kind of a, a stone soup kind of a tour. We're just I'm going to be in a bar actually in one place. It's also a performance space. So, um, uh, I'm going to hit the road with Aaron Birch for the second half of this leg. And, and then June I'll, I'll do some more stuff. Um, but I got to admit that I did schedule, two of these events around a punk rock show, one in St. Paul and one in Chicago, going to see off uh, Keith Morris's band and who's a, a great human being and a great inspiration for, for doing, you're never too old to do what you love. There you go. And you talked earlier about this. I always ask people at the end what they're working on. You say you have a novel in the works that you've drafted. Yep. yep. Any hints as to what it's about? It's about four uh, English instructors who go on a crime spree in Northern Arizona in 1993. Okay. You've got my attention. <laughs> uh, Jim, it's great to catch up with you and to see you. And I want to congratulate you on make it stop. Uh, really great book and a lot of fun to read. And I hope it doesn't come true. <laughs> it does. Yeah. I'm going to, if it does, we know who to blame, you know, we'll all, well, I'll come find you, but I wish you well. I have um, to use this uh, podcast as a way to recruit people into <laughs> the other people vigilante movement. That's right. This is day one of that process. <laughs> uh, 
But congratulations on all of it. Best of luck on whatever is next and on the rest of the tour. Thank you, Brad. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Jim Ruland. His new novel is called Make It Stop, available now from Rare Bird Books. You can find Jim on the internet. His website is jimruland.net. Follow him on Twitter and Instagram. His handle is at Jim Vermin. Once again, the book is called Make It Stop. It is terrifyingly plausible and never boring. It's out there now. Go get your copy. If you would like to support this show, I would deeply appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. The entire archive of this show is made available without a paywall. It's a listener supported program. Help keep it going at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, other You can also sign up for my free once a week email newsletter goes out every Wednesday or Thursday. You can sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, please rate this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating. If it's possible to write a review, write a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have feedback for me, if you would like to send me a letter, you can email the show. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out, my latest novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Got to give it a plug. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to read my novel or have me read it to you, that's possible. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up next on the Other People Show, I will be in conversation with Jasmine Iolani Hakes, author of a new novel called Hula. I had a great time talking with Jasmine about this book, a sweeping generational saga that changed the way I view and think about Hawaii forever. So stay tuned.